Do chapter divisions in the Bible keep people from missing a lot of the good stuff? We're going to be talking about it right here on Greek for the Week. It's that time again. It's Greek for the Week. I'm Chris Palmer. Let's open our Bibles and get right down to the original language, the Greek. God bless you. It's Greek for the Week. Before we get into what we have for today, take this link, send it to somebody, say Greek for the Week. It's a great podcast. Enjoy it. It's been a blessing to me. Let's spread it around a little bit and uh, get the traffic on this going up. Now, I want to talk today about chapter divisions in the Word of God, and it's going to lead into everything else that we're going to talk about, but are they a good thing? I think they're wonderful. As a pastor, as a minister, I can't can't imagine telling people in my congregation how to find a scripture without the chapters and the verses that have been put into the Word of God. Great stuff. So, What's the downside about it? Well, I think the downside about it, as we'll see, is that if we become totally dependent on the chapter and the verse in the Word of God, it's possible we can miss out on some of the really good stuff that's in Scripture because we cap or limit our reading based upon what the chapter and the verses are telling us. We're going to see in just a second, it's it's man-made. It was put in there by somebody to be helpful, and it is helpful, but shouldn't be totally dependent upon. And It has its place. I'm all for it. I wouldn't want to take the chapters and the verses out. I'm not radical like that, okay? But what I'm just making a point and saying, you're going to see here in just a second, as I illustrate it to you, that don't allow yourself to be totally dependent upon the chapters and the verses. Now, I know if you're like me, there's days where you wake up, you're rushing out the door, you read one chapter from Psalms, maybe one chapter from the New Testament, maybe one chapter from the Old Testament. That's great stuff. Keep doing that. That's wonderful. But there's going to be times where you got to allow yourself to take off that lens and look at uh, the text from a different point of view. Okay, so I'm a brass tacks kind of guy, and I like to find out where things came from, why they're there. So just a real short interlude on where chapters and verses came from. Now, sometimes we think, well, the chapters and the verses appeared in the Bible at the same time. Well, first the chapters came along. In 1227 AD, Stephen Langston, Archbishop of Canterbury, said, hey, we need to start putting chapters into the Word of God. So he divided the Bible into chapters, And then you have the Wycliffe Bible, 1332, first Bible to come along. And now nearly all of our English versions of the Word of God, they follow suit and they follow Stephen Langston's chapter divisions from 1227 and the Wycliffe Bibles uh, being the first Bible with these chapter divisions in 1332. Just about every version that we have today on the English market follows the same thing. But then in 1551, a guy by the name of Robert Stevens comes along and he says, hey, you know what? Let's add verses to the Word of God. So he took Langston's chapter divisions and started putting the verses in. This was in 1551. So now we have a Bible that's divided into chapters and verses. And the first Bible that Langston did it in was the Latin Vulgate of 1555. And then in 1560, the first English New Testament that had chapters and verses appeared. And so since 1560, we've had the New Testament with chapters and verses in it. And of course, a Jewish rabbi by the name of Nathan... Nathan, that's what they call him, one name, Nathan, did the Hebrew Bible in 1448. So what's the point of all this? The point is we've had many centuries with the Word of God having chapter divisions and uh, verse divisions in the Word of God, and that's how we've been using it and preaching it ever since. And our eyes have really adjusted to those. If you have a Bible that you have been using for some time, you know exactly where everything's at, you're comfortable with it, you know where the first begins, you know where the verse ends, and you like it and you're comfortable with it, and you know what? That's fantastic, and that's great. But we got to remember that there was human beings that did this, and it wasn't inspired like when the Holy Spirit was writing through the apostles to do it, which means that you can't become 
totally dependent upon those. You're going to have to look past those at some point and really stretch your mind to not see those a lot of times when you're in Scripture. You can't always see the chapter divisions and the verses there because they're not always divided perhaps perfectly. We'll see that in just a second. So one of my favorite books of the whole Word of God is uh, the book of John. And I love John's letters. So 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. I like the Gospel of John, which was written by John. And of course, I like the Apocalypse of John uh, very much because for, for various reasons. But one of the reasons being is I really love the Greek that's in it. I remember my first Greek class in 2005, 2006, we had to translate 1st John. And if you take a beginning Greek class, chances are a lot of the Greek that you'll begin with, the easiest Greek probably in the whole New Testament is going to be found in John, only simply because John's Greek, the word order, there's really no, the word order in Greek is not the same as it is in English, meaning that subject, predicate, and uh, subject, and verbs, they're all over the place, so you don't really have right branching sentences. So being the case, it can be difficult for English speakers because we're so used to reading from left to right to identify subject and verb. But the case is, is that John is pretty close to English, and so it makes the Greek real easy and blah, blah, blah. So we get to John chapter 3, and we see that Nicodemus approaches Jesus, and it says here in verse number 1, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher. Come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. And we, if we've ever read John before, we understand a little bit about Nicodemus by the time we get to him in chapter 19, he's helping to bury Jesus. So he was open about his love and his affection for the Lord. And in John chapter 7, we find that Nicodemus uh, was defending Jesus and, and saying that if, if we're going to try, if, if we're going to do anything to this man, he has to first have a trial. So he really was standing in Jesus' defense because he loved Jesus. So what happens is, is that we, when we come to chapter 3 with our pre-understanding, we think that Nicodemus is a good guy. He's pretty okay. And this is, you know, somebody that is a, a good person. But that's not really what the pericope is telling us. Now, a pericope is a unit of Scripture. It is a unit that has a full uh, laid out thought. That when we look at it, um, this is a whole structure of thought. And the thing about it is, is that this full thought is not always, the pericopes are not always divided by chapter and verses. So that's why sometimes we have to take the verse and chapter lens off and try and find where the thought is picking up. Actually, before we jump to conclusions and think that Nicodemus in chapter 3, he's not the same Nicodemus in chapter 19. He, Nicodemus, has a gradual transformation into this all-out open follower of Jesus Christ. But this isn't him in chapter 3. He's still reserved about Christ. And look at how the book of John introduces Nicodemus to us here in verse number 24. It says here, uh, well, let's go back to 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Verse 24, but Jesus on his part did not trust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Now, this is the introduction that we get before Nicodemus pops into the scene, all the way back in verse number 23. Jesus is not entrusting himself to people because he knows what's inside of them. He doesn't trust them because he knows that man can be deceptive. He knows that he knew that Judas was going to turn on him. He knew what was in the heart of man. And so then it says in verse number three, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. This is, this is the big welcome we have for Nicodemus is that he is somebody that Jesus is not going to trust himself to because he's deceptive. And he's somebody, and look at, look at what it says in verse number two. It says, this man 
came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher. So he comes to him by night. So there's something parallel in there that's saying that this man came to Jesus in darkness. There's deception inside of him. He doesn't want to be open about following the Lord. And he's someone that's in the darkness. And there's an allusion to this when we look further in John chapter 3 and verse number 17, where Jesus says, uh, well, I should say John chapter 3 and verse number 19 it says, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So verse number 319, Jesus is talking about light's coming into the world, which is him, but people love the darkness. Nicodemus came to Jesus in the darkness. And going back to verse number 23 in chapter 2, we'll see that Jesus wouldn't entrust himself to Nicodemus because Nicodemus was still in the darkness. This is what Jesus thought of Nicodemus is that he was a man that was in the darkness and he couldn't entrust himself to him because he didn't trust him. Because Nicodemus hadn't underwent the transformation of the heart just yet. So what do I think of Nicodemus? What Nicodemus are we talking about? Chapter 19, chapter 7, or chapter 3? Chapter 3, he is a deceptive person that's living in the darkness and Jesus can't trust himself to just yet. Chapter 7, you start to see this transformation taking place and Nicodemus is, is coming along and He's been watching Jesus. He's, he's taken into consideration some of his works. And by chapter 19, he's full-fledged follower of Christ. And this represents us coming from the darkness, coming from our works that are in the world, and having a transformation into Christ where we become more bold by him as the light of the glorious gospel of Christ Jesus shines into our heart. And the only way that we can start to see this picture take place is when we take time for the word of God. And instead of just reading one chapter or just reading one section out of a popular daily devotion, we start breaking apart the scripture and, and, and letting it dwell in our hearts and saying, hey, maybe the chapters, we need to pull these off for a second and look at the pericopes of the whole units of thought and then begin to tie those things together. And you can train your eyes to do that as you begin to read the word of God without limiting, your, limiting yourself to chapter and verse. Okay, so let's go to 1 John chapter 1. And, you know, 1 John has really been on, on the, uh, under the microscope lately. Radical grace teachers have come along, and they really use 1 John chapter 1 to make a claim that, hey, you know, we don't have to confess our sins. God, through Christ, has forgiven us of all our sins, past, present, and future. So, you know, confessing your sins, it really just makes, it's just bad, you know, it's just negative. It really makes you feel bad about yourself. And, and you take your eyes off of the work of Christ, and you put it on your sin, you shouldn't confess your sin. And just, just understand that Christ has forgiven you, so do your best to live in and appropriate his righteousness. But, you know, when you do something bad, it's, it's, it's under the blood. Don't worry about it. You receive Christ, and so you receive past, present, and future conviction. And, and you know, I'm not going to break that argument apart right here, but that's a poor argument. It doesn't hold up theologically. It doesn't hold up in the Greek. It's very far off from what the original ten of Scripture is. Maybe I'll do a Greek for the week on that. You can send me a request on Instagram, or you can send me a voicemail right here on the anchor.fm with your questions on it. But I, I, I state that as a footnote, that I'm, under, I'm aware of what's going on right here theologically. And, and, uh, but there's, there's some also some interesting things here in 1 John chapter 1, particularly how it ends. I mean, let's say you wake up in the morning and you say, I'm going to read 1 John. I'm gonna read one, I, have, I have 10 minutes. I'm going to read one chapter. So you get there and you're reading verse 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. You're reading about walking in the light. And then you get to verse number 10. And this is how it ends here in, in chapter 1. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. This kind of a negative ending to, you know, a chapter is, is something negative about God. It, we make him a liar. And, you know, it's not the best, most edifying statement in Scripture. And it's kind of like, oh, yeah, you know, and his word is not in us. 
boom, just ends that way. And you think, wow, that was that was an unusual way for John, you know, to end a chapter because I don't really feel edified and don't have to feel edified. But even when God corrects us, it's still edifying to us. It's still nourishing. It's just something about this. Well, it's because it doesn't end in chapter one, verse number ten. There's an argument that's being made right here, and it goes beyond verse number ten. It actually goes into chapter two. But before we we look at that argument, we have to kind of lay it out a little bit. We have to understand that John here was talking about, people say Gnostics, but I would say pre-Gnostics. Gnosticism really hadn't come so much on the scene just yet. It was a maybe an underdeveloped Gnosticism. And these Gnostics be- believed that, you know, that all things fleshly were bad and all things fleshly were sinful, and including our bodies. And, and Christ never really came in the flesh because his flesh is sinful. He couldn't come in the flesh. And our flesh is going to be corrupted anyway, so it doesn't matter what we do with it. And we can live in sin and uh, <clears throat> our spirit, you know, it's never sinned. Our spirit has really never sinned because it's of God. And so we've never sinned. And it doesn't matter what we've done with our bodies because we're not our bodies. This was kind of a loose-knit suggestion of what this heresy at the time was teaching. And, and, and John's letters, when you're saying, well, what does John mean when he says, says that? He's kind of aiming it towards this, uh, <clears throat> assuming the people that he was writing to understood what was being said at the time. It's helpful for us to understand it so we can know what his letter's talking about. So he's going to combat lasciviousness of the flesh and the notion that, you know, we've never sinned and we're sinless spirits, as, as the Gnostics might say. So our flesh, it's bad, but it doesn't matter what we do in the flesh because we're not the flesh, we're the spirit, and we've never sinned. So that's what's important. So this is kind of what John is combating right here. And so he makes an argument. Now, it's important to understand in the Greek what a conjunction is. Conjunctions are very important. Um, some Greek scholars say don't put too much theology in your conjunction, and I tend to agree with part of that. But sometimes the conjunctions lead us to a lot of theology and, and are very important for understanding what's going on theologically. And there's a conjunction here called an conjunction, which is begins a condition. You see it show up in your English Bibles as if. So if we walk in the light, as you'll see in just a second. And so <clears throat> when you're dealing with something that's conditional, you have the protasis, which is the conditional clause. And an always begins as the protasis or the conditional clause. If you clean your room, then, or followed by the consequent clause, which is called the apodasis, then you can have ice cream. If you do your homework, then you can go outside and play. So the if or the protasis is always beginning with the an clause, okay, which is the condition. And we'll see here. Now, I like to use Logos Bible software. I've been using it for a long time. It, it's, it is expensive. If you're a pastor, if you're a preacher, if you study the Word of God, I, you know, I really suggest invest into it because it, I mean, I, when, I don't always use it in the sense of every time I read the Bible. I do read the Bible a lot electronically um, <clears throat> on my phone or I like to, I, I bring a Bible in the pulpit every time I preach because I like to have the presence of the Word of God. Um, but, you know, it would be a good investment for you to make. I'm always on it. I'm always going through it. And you can do cool things with visual filters. You can type in, for instance, I have here on my computer screen, I'm looking at it right now, AN is <clears throat> highlighted so I can see it. And if you could see what I was seeing right now, you'd see how it's laid out. It's the beginning clause of one, two, three, four, five, six, six, five verses. Five verses began with it, begin with this. Um, or start right there in the beginning with it. So you can see right here the structure is you have six, for in the Greek, verse 6, verse 7, verse 8, verse 9, verse 10, all have this and clause in the beginning. So your eyes would catch this, and then you're going to see it also 
in chapter 2 and verse number 1 and 2. So you're seeing that the argument doesn't end. The way I have it highlighted, it extends past, okay, chapter 2, or uh, 1 verse 10 and chapter 2. So your eyes right away recognize this, and really if you're into this and you're reading it, you're not, you're not going to stop at 2. You're going to keep going because you see the argument is going. Well, let's look at the argument, and I'm going to I'm going to read it here in the English. Just know that when I say if, it's an, and that is the beginning of a conditional clause. So first we see this in verse number 6. Um, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And look at verse number 7. Now you have here day in the Greek, which is a contrastive conjunction, which is bringing contrast to what was previously stated. Okay? So we say, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Verse number seven, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all of our sin. Well, let me just kind of give to you a paraphrase of what that would mean. Instead of claiming fellowship with God and living contrary to the laws of God, we're going to walk in holiness and openness before the Lord and his revealed ways. And when that happens, the blood of Christ cleanses us from all of our sin because we've received his grace. So that's what he's saying. Look at number verse, uh, verse number eight. Here we go again. There's the and clause. Okay, there's the beginning of the condition. If we say we have no sin, which was the Gnostics were saying at that time, we don't have any sin. We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. All right? But look what it says here. If we confess our sins, so even though it's not a contrastive conjunction, which would be but, we have an right there, which verse number nine is negating verse number eight. If we confess our sins, positive statement, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. So this negative, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, is being overrun by a positive. If, or you could say, but if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just. He'll forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Paraphrase, instead of boasting about a life without sin, there's people that do that today, okay? I'm not saying be sin conscious and go around saying you're a sinner and you should stick your head in the sand, but instead of going around boasting about that, we should acknowledge that we have shortcomings because we were born into sin and we should confess that uh, Christ is faithful to us and is going to forgive us of our sins. Okay, so then... Verse number 10, so we've seen verse number 6, negative statement, what the Gnostics are saying, okay, if we, we have fellowship with him, but we walk in darkness, contrasted in verse 7 by a positive statement, but we walk in the light, he's in the light. Verse number 8, negative statement, say that we have sin, we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, positive statement, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. Okay, then we have verse number 10, if we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Any guesses what might be ready to come over here after this? A positive statement right? There's another positive statement that's going to come, and we're going to find it in verse number two. He kind of puts right here a parenthetical statement. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so you may not sin, okay? We don't, I don't want to see you sin and get into sin, and this is why I'm writing these things to you. If we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, okay? And then here you see it again, okay? Uh, in verse number two, he is the propitiation, or we could even put it back in verse number one, Kai, which is but, but we see the if statement right here in verse number two, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So the argument extends into chapter two, verse number one and verse number two, which is if we say we've not sinned, which 
the Gnostics were doing, we make him a liar. Negative. Don't stop there. Keep reading to the positive. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, and he's our propitiation for our sins, and not, always, not only ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, that's the end of the argument right there in chapter 2 and verse number 2. And I can tell you this, if you're going out of the house for the day, that might lift you up more than stopping short of the completion of the argument. So if you're going to preach chapter 1, you really, you got to go past chapter 1 and go into verse chapter 2 and verse number 1 and verse number 2 to see that you have three sets of arguments, a, posit- a negative side being counteracted by a positive side, another negative side being counteracted by a positive side, and then another negative side being counteracted by positive, and it's done in a set of three, which in writing, threes mean completion. If you're going to list things, you say, you know, today I went to the supermarket and I bought bread, milk, and eggs. Well, that's good. Stop there. You don't have to go into all the other stuff. I know that you got the necessities of life. You don't have to tell me you got fruit snacks and you went over and bought some vegetables. By saying you got bread, milk, and eggs means that you got everything that you need. I get it. You don't have to put a fourth or a fifth in there. Three represents completion. Good writers know that. So I don't keep listing things they don't have to list. So <clears throat> you have a completion right here of the faithfulness and the love and the mercy of Christ Jesus. Yes, we have a sin problem, but Jesus came to solve that sin problem. Instead of saying we don't have sin, we can say that we have Jesus Christ, and he's the advocate. He's the one that saved us from our sins. And you get that when you take the limitation off of chapter and verses. So <clears throat> I'm not saying that you have to go and take your daily devotion and put it in the trash. I'm, I'm writing a daily, I've written a daily devotion. It's going to be coming out soon. Um, can't tell you what it's about yet, but I want you to buy it. I want you to get it, and I want you to teach it, use it to, uh, in your Sunday schools and in your small groups. I, I really, it's going to be a blessing. It's going to bless your life, but we're going to go through full chapters in it, um, but I'm not against it. Use your daily devotion, but don't become too dependent on it. Don't just make that the quintessential piece of your Christian education is your daily devotion. It's, they're not intended to do that. I don't think that Joyce Meyer and Tony Dungy and Sarah Young intended for their wonderful devotions to be the essential piece of your Christian theology and the end-all, be-all. Go deep. Use that. <clears throat> if you're, I know you're in a loud coffee shop or you're at an airport. You can't really dig into the Word of God. Understood. Understood. But there's got to be times where you, you, you dig deep. So I want to encourage you to do that, okay? God bless you. Thank you so much for listening to Greek for the Week. We'll have a new one for you this coming Wednesday. And uh, like I said, be sure to share this with a friend. Tell them, hey, Greek for the Week, download it. You're going to learn a lot of things. It'll make your drive more educational, more inspirational, more enjoyable. We're so thankful for our listenership. If you want to support Greek for the Week, there's a way that you can do that in the link on anchor.fm. And as always, keep studying God's Word and keep putting the Word of God as the foundation of your life. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to support us further, you may visit us on the web at lightoftoday.org. God bless and good studying.